Welcome to this moment in democracy. I'm Saladin Ambar. On today's episode, we speak to Amy Walter, the publisher and editor-in-chief at the Cook Political Report. Amy is a contributor to the PBS NewsHour, where she provides weekly political analysis for the popular Politics Monday segment, and is a featured contributor for their election and convention special coverage events. She is also a regular Sunday panelist on NBC's Meet the Press and CNN's Inside Politics, and appears frequently on Special Report with Brett Baer on Fox News Channel. This podcast was recorded on Friday, February 3rd, 2023. Amy, welcome to This Moment in Democracy. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to see you. Um, There's so much going on in this country of ours. uh, (laughs) And I've just read your recent uh, report uh, that Cook put out about the 2024 Senate races and and the ratings. Uh, Why don't you help break down for our audience uh, who you think will help define the 2024 election cycle? Sure. Well, again, thanks for having me. And um, the thing about the Senate, as folks of this podcast probably know, is that uh, every two years, while the House, all 435 members of the House are up, only a third of the Senate is up. And so the Senate uh, battleground changes considerably from election to election, depending on what class is up uh, at, at the end of their six year term. In 2022, Democrats had a lot of seats that they were defending, but they had one benefit, which was the fact that those seats were in states that Biden had carried in 2020. So they didn't have to fight on, uh, for political terms, enemy territory. They weren't trying to hold on to states that Trump had carried in the previous election. That's not the case in this upcoming election in 2024, where Democrats are defending three states that Trump carried. And it's not that he carried them by a little, he carried them by a lot, right? These are deep red states, West Virginia, Ohio, Montana. uh, Those three alone are challenging for Democrats. And then you put on top of it, the fact that you have a number of these, either we could call them light blue or purple states that Democrats, uh, again, have to defend Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada. Now, Democrats did quite well in those states, not Wisconsin last cycle, but in those other states. But it's a presidential year. You have turnout that will look different than it did in 2022, a lot of unknowns. So Democrats come in playing a lot of defense. Republicans have very few, not only very few vulnerable Senate seats to defend, but very few seats Overall, only 11 seats that are up for Republicans compared to 23 for Democrats. And the only states that we could put into the even potentially vulnerable vulnerable category would be Florida, a state that we used to call a battleground state, but now I put into the category of a leaning Republican state. And Texas, it's Ted Cruz is up again. We remember 2018, that was a very competitive race against Beto O'Rourke, the Democrat, Um, Unclear if Democrats are going to put the same effort into the race this time around. So, look, Democrats come in with a one seat majority. They can afford to lose one seat if they hold on to the White House. If they don't hold the White House, they can't afford to lose any seats in order to keep their majorities. And as I said, there are already just three states alone that are red states that will be tough. And then you put a state like Arizona which is another big question mark because 
while technically Kirsten Cinema is caucusing with the Democrats, she is an independent. Right. And uh, she's getting challenged by a Democrat. Yeah, there's so much going on there. And, you know, I'm reminded, obviously, coming off of this set of midterm elections, uh, that, you know, anything is is possible. Um, and, and, and I want to ask you about uh, that. Perhaps we're, we're not looking at a potential silver lining or, or um, uh, some, you know, godforsaken scenario where Democrats uh, exceed expectations in the Senate in 2024. Um, is there a scenario that you see, uh, however, um, you know, outside of the realm of possibility or, or, or uh, unlikely, is there a scenario you see where Democrats may well outperform expectations in the Senate? Uh, look, I think the most important question for Democrats right now is how many of their incumbents are going to retire versus run for reelection. There's a very big difference between does John Tester in Montana have an opportunity to win re-election versus can another Democrat win in an open seat in Montana? Uh, West Virginia, very similar. It's a tough road for uh, somebody like Joe Manchin to, to win re-election, but no other Democrat right. can win a, in West Virginia. So that is a, a, a really serious question, I think, for Democrats uh, is, you know, keeping those members uh, from retiring. Um, and and the next is the the mood of the country and what the what the presidential race looks like. You know, it's interesting if you go back and, and look at the last two presidential elections and compare that with the Senate elections, what you find is there are very few in case and by very few, I mean one <laughs> uh, example of a state where voters voted for a Senate candidate of one party and the presidential candidate from the other party. In other words, they go together uh, almost 100 percent of the time, at least since 2016. And so what would need to happen for uh, Democrats to have a not terrible night is. Uh, or even decent night, or as you pointed out, even a good one, right? Holding on to the Senate is they'd have to hold on to not just one, not just two, but three states and potentially more. We don't know what's going to happen in some of these battleground states like Pennsylvania or Wisconsin, Nevada, Arizona, uh, be able to outperform the president in all of those states. That's, again, is it impossible? No. But uh, I think when when you look back at the 2022 example, you have to, you really do have to remember how good that map was for Democrats. Again, they were playing on purplish, bluish territory. They didn't have open seats. It's a very different scenario than what we're looking at uh, in the upcoming election. Uh, sobering words for uh, Democratic strategists out there, uh, to be sure. Look, since you raised the um, uh, the presidential uh, election coming up uh, next year, uh, who are the GOP candidates that are strongly positioned for the nomination? You know, I, I was struck by your discussion of Ron DeSantis, but also Brian Kemp. Yeah, I find him fascinating. The one even through, through all the different elections and 
all the craziness in our politics over these last 15, 20 years, the one thing that's remained pretty consistent is how difficult it is for us to predict who will come out as the nominee uh, this far ahead in the process. I remember back in 2008, Hillary Clinton was the absolute for sure front runner. Yeah, maybe this Barack Obama guy, you know, it'll be he'll be interesting to watch, but she's the uh, she's the favorite. Rudy Giuliani was the favorite in 2008 as well. That's what we all, uh, yes. you know, again, at this stage, not as we got later into 2008, but at this stage of the game in 2007, the assumption was it was going to be Hillary Rooney. Um, Scott Walker was the flavor in 2012. Uh, so was uh, Sarah Palin. We were all talking about Sarah Palin in 2012. Right. So you've just got to be very, very careful about making assumptions this far out about who the nominee will ultimately be. The other thing we know is it's really dangerous for a candidate to be deemed a front runner this early in the cycle because it just puts that much more scrutiny and uh, it's almost like it puts a bullseye on them, right? For the media, for their opponents to just go after them and, and spend the next multiple months trying to pick at and and push at any of their vulnerabilities or or to put you know to 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 try to highlight those so it's challenging to be a front runner this this early in the game it's why if i were a candidate the place i would want to be is kind of under the radar uh where people know you people have heard of you you have somewhat of a national standing but you're not under the microscope and I think Brian Kemp fits that mold right now, or you know, fits in, into that uh, description. He's a candidate who can do a couple of things. The first is he can tell Republican voters who want to see not just a, uh, a more uh, aggressive kind of Republican nominee, one who can, comes in the mold. They like the mold of a Donald Trump. Um, but what he can tell them is he he can run as a conservative, but a conservative who knows how to win in tough states. Donald Trump obviously lost Georgia. Senate candidates have lost on the Republican side, have lost in Georgia for the last two cycles. Brian Kemp has been a success story. Uh, and I think that's a, has a, that's a pretty good sell. As I said, he's different from some of the other blue state or purple state Republicans in that he has not been embraced by Donald Trump. Obviously, Donald Trump yeah. <laughs> uh, in 2021 uh, did everything he could to undermine him. But he's not an anti-Trump candidate, right? Uh, he hasn't spent his time in office taking shots at Donald Trump. What he's done is he's effectively figured out how to neutralize Trump's power without angering the Trump base in his state. Now, is Brian Kemp going to run? I have no idea. Uh, does he want to run? I have no idea. But I do think if you have a scenario where DeSantis and Trump, as they're already doing right now, go after each other, right, as rock'em, sock'em robots, uh, by the time we get toward the end of the year, you may have a lot of Republican voters and party bigwigs looking around and saying, oh, man, 
is this really, we're going to pick one of these folks. Why don't we find somebody who doesn't have as much scar tissue and look around for, for who else is available. Obviously you're going to get a number of other candidates who jump in before then we have Nikki Haley who's um, set to announce soon coming week or so a female candidate, woman of color, former governor, former UN ambassador, right. Comes with a lot of her own um, basket of, uh, of things that she can sell to the uh, Republican base. But, you know, there's, again, she does not have the star power that Ron DeSantis has at this point. So I'll be very curious to see what the reception is to her from activists, donors, et cetera. Um, But also, you know, how does she distinguish herself from a DeSantis or a Trump? What makes her a candidate for Republican voters um, to say, you know what, I was thinking I was going to be Trump or DeSantis, but I don't know, maybe this maybe this Nikki Haley has something the other ones don't. Uh, it's a fascinating discussion. And to our, our listeners, I do encourage you to read the report. It's really terrific. Uh, and uh, but you have to you have to listen to the podcast to get a Rock'em Sock'em Robot reference. And so as a child of the 70s, I I, uh, I salute you. <laughs> you warm my heart. <laughs> so thank you for that. Uh, no, it's it's really a terrific um, uh, piece and, and a great analysis. And, and you mentioned DeSantis again here and uh, he goes to these culture war issues. Uh, I don't want to say as well as because I'm not necessarily a fan personally of of how uh, those policies are played out. But um, I think the point is that he does use these wedge issues. Let's use that language um, uh, to get uh, you know voters riled up. And this recent um, dispute or uh, set of allegations against. Uh, the College Board's Advanced Placement Course in African-American Studies is a good example uh, of one of them uh, on the first day of Black History Month, no less. Do you think the board caved into pressure from conservative opposition on this? Uh, how how should um, uh, folks who study politics think about what's going on here with this particular issue? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, Dean. And I you know, I've watched the college board respond, um, listen to an interview with the, with the head of the college board, listen to what um, DeSantis and others were criticizing about the course. I think as a as a political issue, um, you know, where you stand on this, who is quote unquote correct, is also determined by where you sit on this, right? Mm-hmm. So where you sit politically. Yes. Um, if you really do believe that um, the the challenge of our times right now in education, whether that's um, secondary or post-secondary education, is that teachers are um, spending more time on culture issues rather than on the three R's, then you would agree with Ron DeSantis and other Republicans who are who are trying to make this case. And look, Dean, I know you've you've seen these polls as well. If you look at the percent of people who identify as Republicans who now have negative views about universities and colleges. Um, You know, this was something that not that long ago, most Americans would say, yeah, college is a good thing. A college education is an important thing. Um, It has become polarized now along party lines, like almost everything else in our life. Uh, where, Where you, it's no longer just where you go to school. It's if you are going uh, and and getting a post-secondary education 
what kind of car you drive, what kind of coffee you drink, all of it now has political implications. I think the challenge for candidates in this era, though, is you can win a lot of plaudits from your base, you can get a lot of buzz, raise a lot of money from online donors by leaning into these issues. But at the end of the day, you win a presidential election by winning independent voters. You've got to meet folks who just aren't engaged on these issues. They really aren't paying much attention to them. They don't find them interesting or important in their lives. And if you look at why Democrats were successful in 2022, it's that they did better with independent voters, especially in these Senate races, by double digits than Republicans. That is not supposed to happen in a midterm election year, especially in a midterm election year where voters were pretty disappointed with the direction of the country and with the president himself. But what voters were saying essentially in in this last election was, yeah, we're not happy with the status quo, but we are more worried. We think a bigger risk is going with the other party. Um, I think someone who was able to effectively use the education issue to his advantage uh, was probably Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. And the way he, he had a couple of benefits. The first is this was his his election was taking place in 2021 as we were still kind of in the midst of all of the pandemic frustration as a parent i felt it too right sure. all of our kids sure. and and the challenge of trying to school them at home and they go back to school and they're not prepared all of that so he tapped into that frustration as well as a pretty significant gaffe by the democrat terry mcauliffe during a debate where he said, parents, yes. all right, parents shouldn't have as much say on these issues as they think they should. Well, that didn't go over too well. No. Um, so, I, you know, it was like that perfect moment in time. And yet, if you look at the results of the 2022 election, Democratic governors, many of them who had been attacked, whether on pandemic issues with the schools or those same sort of culture issues, um, were successful in winning re-election. So again, I just, I think the real question in my mind for somebody like Ron DeSantis is how well does he pivot from being the, the guy who likes to take on woke ideology and liberals and elites to, but I'm doing it for you, right? I'm doing it to help the average person. I'm not doing it just to get... Uh, support of my base, I'm doing it. And you can see the results in your day-to-day life, average voter who's not paying attention to most of this stuff. For sure. Uh, You're right. And I think um, you you do a great job of distinguishing Kemp from DeSantis in this way, because I think Kemp seems to have, uh, you know, better acumen or a greater degree of, uh, um, I don't know, dexterity in handling this. uh, to convey his anger or frustration with a quote unquote woke agenda, if you will, uh, and some of these cultural issues, while also seeming more reasonable, <laughs> perhaps. Yeah. I mean, he it, it's quite a transformation from a candidate in, who in 2018, when he was running in a competitive primary, you know, he went very much into the right on issues on immigration, on guns. Um, he's not a He's not as squishy as as uh, 
some uh, Republicans call them rhino, Republican right, in name only, right. right? I mean, he is a conservative. He has passed conservative laws on guns, on abortion, on voting rights. So um, he, uh, you know, to, 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 to make that move into the middle, it's going to look different than for someone I'm trying to think of another governor, like a governor like a Larry Hogan mm. or right from from Maryland who had to right. work with a Democratic legislature who couldn't win without getting a lot of Democrats voting for him. Brian Kemp wins because he's able to get many of these independent leaning voters, especially suburban voters who really turned off by Donald Trump, turned off by somebody like Herschel Walker, but see in Kemp someone who is, I guess we could just say more normal, <laughs> like what they think of as a, a a normal conservative versus one who seems like, well, this is just chaos. Right, right. Fair enough. A um, couple of uh, quick rounds on some uh, recent news events. Uh, this past Wednesday, President Biden met with uh, Speaker McCarthy at the White House to discuss the debt limit and budget priorities. Uh, can the government do anything to forestall disaster? Uh, is our Americans paying attention to this? Uh, how how might this affect uh, politics uh, in the coming months? Uh, I don't know that Americans are paying as much attention to it. They pay attention to it when it starts to hit their bottom line. Mm. Um, the other day, I uh, was meeting with a with a group of people who are involved in in the business of Washington. Some of them were lobbyists uh, mm -hmm. and other things. And uh, the best description I heard about this was from one person who said, you know, it's a little bit like a kidney stone, this whole debt <laughs> ceiling debate. It's uh, going to pass. It's just a question of how painful will it be, which is maybe a little TMI for some people. Uh, if you've ever had one, it is it's not a pleasant experience. But the point being, no one wants to see the uh, government default on its debt. Um, it does not benefit any party. Um, or obviously it doesn't benefit the country. So what can get done between now and the summer for both sides to feel like they got a win out of this, right? For, or it, even they were able to save face um, and, and be able to go back uh, to their constituencies and say, look, we told you we were going to be able to get X, Y, and Z out of it. Here, we, maybe we didn't get X and Y, but we definitely got Z. That, I think, is what, what ultimately uh, we'll be looking for. But as you know, there's nothing that gets Washington uh, moving like the threat of a deadline. And for so sure. there'll be a lot of conversations, a lot of talk. But the closer we get to the deadline, the more realistic the scenarios turn out to be. Absolutely. Uh, and we'll see uh, if history repeats itself, because it does seem to uh, these things tend to resolve uh, at right. the 11th hour for sure. That's right. Uh, one other uh, you know, piece of news, I'd be certainly remiss if I didn't bring up the uh, horrific death of Tyree Nichols, um, uh, who was uh, beaten uh, recently in this, uh, to death uh, by five uh, police officers. And his funeral was just yesterday. Um, also the death of a double amputee, Anthony Lowe, um, the hands of law enforcement. Uh, these are horrific uh, events and, and they are, um, I, I think, clearly national um, news. Uh, 
how likely will Congress move on police reform? Does this change the equation? It seemed as though uh, uh, the kind of uh, prospective bill that was out there um, for police reform uh, was languishing. Do you think that will change? And um, feel free to, to chime in about the politics of this going forward. You know, there was a poll out this week from NBC News that asked voters just to use a word or a phrase to describe how you think things are going right now will be a year in the future where America's headed in the next mm-hmm. year. And 69% of those polled used a negative word or phrase. It's the highest that they've ever recorded in terms of the the percent of voters who used a negative word rather than a positive word. And I think what it comes to show ultimately is Americans feel an incredible sense of pessimism and worry and concern. And it's not about just one thing. This is not just, well, because inflation is high. Well, because uh, they are frustrated about COVID. This is Tyree Nichols. This is watching Washington not able to get its act together and literally putting the faith of the American uh, system in the balance. This is the worry that parents have about the safety of their kids in schools. I mean, it just goes, it is a deep um, sort of persistent anxiety um, that Americans have that things just are off and there's no one there to really show us a way forward. And, you know, some of this too is uh, that legislation in and of itself isn't going to solve these things, that looking to Washington for the answers, I think for many people feels pretty hollow. What they want, I think, is a sense that things are going to, I don't know, like get better (laughs) at some point, right? That we've been through so much over these last five years and that at some point, right, we have to have, it's not that it's suddenly going to turn around, but that we can feel optimistic about, uh, about our next steps and we don't. And I don't, I wish I could say I knew that how, how we solve that, <laughs> solve for that. Right. But I think some of it comes down to where our leaders choose to put their focus and attention? Is it leaning into the fighting and the finger pointing? Or is it saying, you know what? We need to spend less time talking about what everybody else is doing wrong and trying to figure out how we can do stuff right together. I, it, it's just a, it's a bigger, deeper, longer conversation, Dean, than we can yes. certainly have time for right now. But I, I think we're at this, really unique point in American uh, history in that, um, you know, on its face, this country seems to be doing well. We just had a jobs report that says, oh, we have the lowest unemployment in since 1969. Yeah. Yes. Right. And uh, the, the COVID epidemic is, is basically over and uh, right. We're getting back on track. But people don't feel like we're getting back on track. And, um, you know, some of it is the, the, the news and the information that we consume, which really does lean into controversy, which leans into uh, turning people against one another. 
um, rather than saying, <laughs> here are some ways that we can go forward and, and find some answers that bring us together. So I do think that the conflict um, industrial complex, unfortunately, continues to get stronger and stronger. And that makes it harder for those of us who, which I think is all most of us, right, want to see an end to this uh, sort of endless cycle of, of pessimism and anxiety. Well, that's well said, and we may have to just very well leave it there. Uh, and I will say, Amy, thank you for not only being here, but for your work over decades, frankly, that has uh, affirmed our common humanity. I think that's uh, not saying too much. I think that's uh, an honest assessment of who you are and what um, you do. And and we are thankful that you're with the Cook Political Report doing the day in and day out work to uh, show that American politics doesn't have to be uh, negative, that it can be affirming of who we are uh, as human beings and as Americans, to be sure. So thank you once again for, for joining us. Thank you for having me, Dean, and thank you for the work that you're doing on this. It's my pleasure. Today's podcast has been brought to you by the Eagleton Institute of Politics. Eagleton is a nonpartisan research unit of Rutgers University, New Brunswick. This moment in democracy was made possible in part by the generosity of Gerald and Kiko Harvey and Eagleton's many supporters. To support Eagleton's work or sign up for its newsletter, click the links in the description. To learn more about the Institute, visit eagleton.rutgers.edu and follow Eagleton on social media.